are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. My name is Chuck Musselwhite, and I'll say this again, but um, I'm one of the board members here at Enduring Word. Um, I'm also the pastor of the Village Chapel, about an hour north of um, uh, Santa Barbara, and uh, just excited to be with you guys today. Um, One little plug I do want to make, if you haven't watched um, uh, the Sinai video yet that we uh, premiered on uh, Memorial Day, which I believe was... Oh, the 29th of May. Um, if you haven't watched that on the um, uh, on the Enduring Word channel, I really want to encourage you guys to um, to go and, and check that out because it's about a 55-minute video, really well done by Lance Ralston, the other board member. Um, all of us are in it and just kind of tours the evidence for the real Mount Sinai over on in the Saudi Arabian area as opposed to the Sinai Peninsula and just had... A lot, a lot of fun on that trip. It was kind of one of those uh, bucket trip, bucket list trips that I didn't know uh, was on my bucket list, but we just uh, had two weeks of just absolute blast. And so um, I'm excited. Um, uh, make sure you guys want to watch that. So, all right, we'll give it another minute for people to jump on here and then we'll start asking, um, we'll start asking uh, some questions here. So, and, uh, um, and then kind of go from there. So if, uh, um, let me see here. I always mess this up, but we all, um, we want to welcome the TRW 360 people, I believe. I, I believe that's how I always mess it up. So if you're watching from there, I really do apologize and put in the comments if I blew it and I'll correct it the next time. But um, we have people from all over the world and I always love when people put like, hey, coming from here there just to kind of see it um, and just uh, always blessed by that. So, but let's get started. Welcome to the Enduring Word um, Q&A for this week. Uh, as you can tell, I'm not David Guzik. Um, my name is Chuck Mosway. I'm the lead pastor of the Village Chapel, um, about an hour north of Santa Barbara. Um, I'm also an Enduring Word board member, been on the board for about eight years. Um, just uh, considered just a great privilege to be a part of this ministry and how God's used it. David is in um, Brazil this week. Um, he's down doing a pastor's conference. He's been doing a lot of international travel um, this year, starting when we went to Saudi Arabia. Then he went uh, on Africa, Germany, um, and now Brazil. Um, God's using him all over the world in so many ways, both digitally and physically. And so I know they're down there doing a pastor's conference. At least I saw something on Facebook to that a stretch yesterday. So um, anyways, just be praying for them um, as they're down there ministering to pastors. I know people are always blessed when he's in person and he's teaching and so uh, we want to do that and um, and just uh, uh, welcome to everybody. So let's jump in right here because I got a growing list of questions. Sean asks, actually, let me start with my lead question. <laughs> totally forgot about that. What my, my lead question is, is, you know, what do graduates need to know most um, today? Now, the reason I say that is because it's graduation series, uh, season. Um, I had a daughter, daughter graduate from high school uh, last Friday, I had a daughter, another daughter graduate from junior high, and I have a son graduating from high school tomorrow. Don't ask. They go to two different high schools, one's in person, one's a charter. Anyways, but three kids graduating, and uh, and I and I thought to myself, you know, if I was up on stage and they asked me to speak at one of those graduations, what are things that I would tell graduates? Because, you know, you hear a lot of stuff of like, you know, this world is just a bad place. This You're going out into one of the worst situations. You are, um, you know, like the, the, the job market's difficult. The housing market is too expensive. Inflation is crazy. And, and, and we're kind of pumping all of this fear um, and uncertainty, um, starting with high school graduates all the way to college graduates. And, 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 and you, can, you can tell by the studies that the, that the, uh, the, um, the morale or the positivity from these graduates is, is, is lowest it's been in, in a long time. And, 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 you know, I always, you know, Situations come and go, change, you know, economy ups and go, goes up and down. When I graduated, the economy was, you know, was bad. Um, but, but you know, what's interesting, I've always found, and I think that every graduate needs to hear, and, and not just graduate, but, but specifically graduates, is I believe three things. First of all, they need to know that God is sovereign. 
Okay. And, and what I mean by that is, is that God, he's in control. Literally, he is in control. And um, our graduates need to know that God is in control. And if that we're a follower of Jesus Christ, that we are in his hands and, and he's going to take it. I love some of his best words are in some of his last words. And, and it's easy to kind of graze over this because it's right after the Great Commission. But in Matthew chapter 28, um, especially in the New King James Version, he says, Lo, I am with you always. So Matthew 28, 20, Jesus says, lo, I am with you always. Now I, I throw the low in there because we don't use that word anymore. Um, but it's so important because that word low is like, Hey, pay attention to this. I just gave you the great commission, but low. And, and what he basically says is this is important. And then he says, I am with you always. I am with you always. And, and you know what? God is with us. No matter if the situation is great, no matter if the situation is bad, God doesn't abandon us based on our circumstances. He's with you. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to be with you always. And you know what? Our graduates need to hear that no matter what situation they walk into, God is with them. And they need to know that God is in control. God is sovereign. And, and we may look at things and go, wow, man, I don't know what's going to happen. And this is crazy. And we see the news and we see all the politics. But we need to remember, lo, I am with you always. Jesus said that. The second thing that I believe that um, we need to tell our graduates is that they need to go in grace. They need to go in grace. And, and I'm not talking about just extending grace to other people, although that's important. But I think that they need to know that as they go, as, as Christ is in them, they go in the grace of Jesus Christ. And that means that, that, that he's not only sovereign and, and in control, but if they blow it, it's okay. God's not going to abandon them. If, if we blow it, you know, people may abandon us. But, but what Jesus is telling us is that he is with us all the time. And if we blow it, it's it, his level of favoritism, his level of approval doesn't go up and down, whether we, whether we blow it or, or we, or we, we nail it. And, um, and that's something I think that needs to be reaffirmed because I think that people are so afraid of failure that they're afraid to try things. But not only that, that when they do, um, because of social media and because of all this uh, stuff today, that when people blow it, man, they, they often recede into this hole. And we need to know that, that we're covered by the grace of Jesus Christ and so that we can go in grace. And, and it's not that we're purposely trying to blow it, but if we do, if we stumble, if we blow it, God's there with his grace. You know, if we sin, Ask for forgiveness. Confess your sins. Um, if we stumble, he's there to pick us up. And I believe um, that's just not preached enough nowadays. That you know, I know there's cheap grace out there, but but in your goings, go in the grace of God. And, and then the final is is just be filled with peace. Be filled with peace. Romans five says that one of the benefits of of our salvation uh, of of our justification is that that we are filled with peace and we're, we're filled with love through the Holy Spirit as well. But but you know what? We don't have to be anxious. We don't have to be um, full of, of 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 depression. We don't have to be full of anything like that because. Christ gives us his peace, the peace that passes all understanding. And, uh, and you know, I honestly believe today that the graduates need to hear that God is in control, that we can go in his grace and that everything will be okay. And that the fact is, is that he gives us the peace necessary to go forward. And, um, and, and, and you just don't hear that nowadays. You hear like, you know, be the best you can be, get the most out of life. You, li you only live once. You hear all these different things and, you know, all these witticisms. But, but what they don't remind, especially Christian graduates, is that they're already equipped with three things that have set them up for spiritual success, the sovereignty of God, the grace of Jesus Christ, and the peace that passes all understanding. And when we do that, and when we believe that, and when we live in that, God does some amazing things. And so I think that most importantly is what graduates need to hear today. All right. Okay. My little mini sermon's done. Let's jump into the questions. I got a whole host of them here. Sean asked this. Hello, pastor. 
God bless you. God bless you too, Sean. I would love if you would share your spiritual understanding of the book of Revelations chapter six. Hey, why don't we just jump into the deep end right here, Sean? And, you know, okay. So Sean, what you need to understand is in the book of Revelations, there's three sets of judgments. Um, It starts in Revelation chapter six uh, with um, the seven seals. And then it goes to the seven trumpets, and then it goes to the seven bowls. Now, what's interesting is that the six seals, or the six, yeah, the six, the first six seals are actually judgment. And let's call those the chaos judgments because, I mean, it brings war, it brings death, it brings um, a famine, it brings all that kind of stuff, and it brings that upon the earth. Okay. Now, the seventh judgment in the first two always opens up the next seven. So the seventh seal opens up the seven trumpets and the seventh trumpet opens up the seven bowls. And so what you have to realize is it's, it's a, it's a succession of things. And so um, if you look at the, those six things, um, those six seals in Re- Revelation chapter six, it, it, what it's doing is it's God's unleashing his chaos upon the earth. I um, mean, if you look at the first one, um, it talks about, uh, there was a white horse. Okay. And he was given a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering. Okay. So, so automatically wars start to happen. Okay. And then it goes on from there. And then we see the second seal and out came a right, a bread, a bright red horse. Um, and, uh, and then, and then people begin to slay one another. All right. And then it goes on from there. And then we see things like in the fourth seal where, you know, you have the writer's name is death and one quarter of the people die. And the third seal, um, I believe, is the the inflation um, that comes where, you know, things I mean, there's famine upon the earth and there's this absolute, you know, bedlam and, and, and chaos because things become so expensive. So so that's what's happening is God is literally unleashing his chaos upon the earth during the tribulation period. Okay, and that's important to understand. So remember, there's three sets of seven judgments. The first six judgments happen, and then the seventh one opens up the next seven. So hopefully, Sean, that answers your question. Okay, all right. Ronnie asks, new believer here, so looking for advice. I started uh, my daily reading of the Word of God in Mark. Great job, Ronnie. Um, love to see new believers do that. Um, he's, and you see, I'm a halfway through wondering if you have any suggestions on the next book I should read. Well, you know, it's always good to read systematically through the scriptures. But, if, you know, if I could suggest a book for you to read after the book of Mark, um, I would suggest the book of Colossians. It's four short chapters, but man, it's just packed full of stuff. Um, you know, I know books like Galatians and Ephesians are so good. And, and But, you know, sometimes we need to kind of ease into a book like Colossians so we can understand those other books. And so, um, and especially as a new believer. Um, so if you don't want to go systematically, I would encourage you to, um, to to check out the book of Colossians. And, uh, and you know, pull up David's commentary as you're doing that because, you know, it's verse by verse. He's going to help you understand things. Um, and if you don't know where that's at, it's EnduringWord.com. Um, we'll put the link down below uh, eventually, but, um, but yeah, that's, that's what's going on. I would, I would, I, me personally, I would encourage you to go to the book of Colossians next because it's just a, a powerful book. Okay. All right. Lucho asks, blessings from Florida. Um, question, do you think Solomon is with the Lord from reading the book of Kings? I haven't found where Solomon repented for sacrificing to other gods. Oh, okay. So, um, my personal belief is that Solomon's there. Okay. Now I could be totally wrong. And, um, I, you know, I would stand corrected if that was the case. Um, but, uh, I would say that he is now he didn't repent for that. Um, I, I understand that. Um, but, uh, but you know, I think all of us are going to have unrepented sin, um, of before we go to heaven, um, because Christ is going to come, um, in the blink of an eye at the, the blowing of a trumpet. And, you know, some of us are gonna be smart enough to, to confess our sins right then. Um, but I think, I, I don't think that that, um, disqualified Solomon from being in heaven. So, all right, next Lynn asks, does, does Ephesians 5, 5 mean if we are in a sexual sin, we aren't saved? Ephesians 5, 5, in the New King James and first, for this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, no covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Okay, so this is a really, really great question. And Lynn, I'm, I'm thank you for asking it because, you know, uh, for a long time I struggled with that too. 
And I, um, I wanted to know, you know, kind of what's going on right here. All right. So, um, let me explain this the best way. Um, I think if we stumble into sexual sin, um, I think that doesn't eliminate us from going to heaven. Okay. And I believe that's the, the, the question that you're, that you're asking right here. Um, uh, well, no, you're asking if we aren't saved. No, I, I believe there are Christians who commit sexual sins and they don't lose their salvation over that. Um, I think the danger is, is that if we fall into a lifestyle, um, we forsake Jesus Christ. We, we become so consumed with, with those sins. Um, and that's what I believe it's talking about here is like a fornicator, um, the unclean person, all right. Are those idolaters kind of things where, where that consumes their life? Um, I think they won't inherit the kingdom of God. All right. Um, and, uh, but, but saved, I think if people fall into sexual sin, I don't think they lose their salvation. I don't believe they can lose their salvation over that. I believe when they turn their back on Christ and fully follow after these sins, I think that's when people won't inherit the kingdom of God. All right. Great question. Okay. Dan S. Oliver asks, as long as you're in Revelation, how about the rainbow and the majesty of chapter four? I think we, uh, I really think we need to understand Satan stole this simple to, uh, symbol to corrupt its believers. I, I agree with you. So, so let's go here to chapter four. Okay, and me, there's so much stuff in chapter four. I'm like, okay, I got to find the rainbow here. Um, Huh. My translation taking place. My translation doesn't have um oh okay, verse three. Sorry, it was tucked in there. It says, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper Jasper and Carneal. What John is doing here is he's describing the throne room of God. He's this describing heaven and, and the elders are there and the living creatures are there and the saints are there and, 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 and they're casting off their crowns and they're bowing down and they're saying, holy, holy, holy. And so as John is describing that in verse three, he's literally describing in his best words he can possibly come up with what the throne room of God looks like. Um, and, and he says, you know, that, 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 um, Jesus had the appearance of, uh, or the throne had the appearance of Jasper and Carlina, and around the throne was this rainbow. And yes, I agree with you, Dan, that Satan has that. Now, what's interesting, now, and, and you know, of course, this being Pride Month in America, here's something interesting um, that we need to remember, that in the pride flag and in the pride rainbow, there's only six colors, okay? Um, in God's rainbow, there's seven. Um, now, if you're into numerology, that's significant because seven is the number of completion. It's the number of perfection. Six is the number of incompletion. Okay. Which is why the beast has the number six, six, six. It's a, and, 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 and so you can see the contrast. God's rainbow is perfect. The, the pride flag, the pride rainbow is incomplete. And I think it's interesting because the, you know, I believe the, the, um, the color that's missing on the pride flag is the, is the, um, the, the purple scarlet, the, the blue kind of thing. And, you know, people are like, Oh, it's no big deal. But you know, what's interesting is that, that over the years, that was the, that was the color of royalty. Um, all, every King wanted that. That was the most expensive fabric. That was what, um, uh, Lydia dealt with in, in, in Philistine, uh, or, um, uh, Fli the Philistines area. And so, um, and, it, and I think it's interesting that they don't have that in there because they don't have the, the glory. They don't have the majesty of Jesus Christ. Um, and uh, that I think represents that color. So anyways, that's my, uh, that's my, that's, that's my take on that, but great point, Dan. And thanks for asking that. Adrian asks, hello from Canada. Well, part of Canada. Let me know what part of Canada you're from. Um, Jesus indicated that married couples were joined together by God. Does this also apply to marriages involving unbelievers? Okay. Now, you're, you're looking at it this way. I look at it as the point of bringing couples together. 
I, I look at it a different way, that God joins couples together. It means that, that when they take those vows between, before each other and before God, that, that he uses the Holy Spirit to take two individuals and, and they become one. If you look in Ephesians chapter 5, where it says that they are no longer two, but they are one. Um, and, and that's the great mystery. And, and so I, I want to encourage you guys to understand that, that it's not talking about where God brings people together. Does he bring people together? Yes, I believe that God brought me and my wife together. Okay, but what this is talking about joining together is that when we take those vows, when we, you know, when we say to, to have and to hold um, till death do us part kind of thing. Um, you know, as we, 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 as we witness and testify before Jesus Christ and before all these witnesses, um, I believe that's where the joining happens. And I believe the Holy Spirit becomes the glue. And I always use the analogy of, of, of two pieces of plywood um, being um, glued together. And, and when that glue adheres and dries, it actually fuses the two boards. And when you pull those two boards together, um, pieces of each board go with the other board. And so you don't fully ever, you can't fully ever separate because the, because the two of you have become one. And I believe that's why you see so many, um, so much brokenness, like in divorce, because, um, because you've left part of yourself with the other person. And, um, and so I believe that's, um, Adrian, I believe that's what the, uh, um, the, the scripture saying so, and I see you're from Brampton, Ontario. So thank you for answering that question. And I hope I, I answered the, the rest of your question there. Ooh, what in the heck happened to my screen? Uh Oh, uh Oh, I exploded my screen. Okay. All right. The next one is from tunnel Bannon 23 and they ask, hello from Sweden. Hello. I'm Swedish myself. My, my grandfather's last name is Anderson, um, and he came from, or his father came from Sweden, so I have an affinity for Sweden. Um, says, I saw your video from Saudi Arabia. Why did God order Noah to bring snakes to the ark and when a snake tricked Eve to eat the forbidden fruit? Okay, uh, you know, why, why did he allow mosquitoes on the, on the boat as well? You know, I mean... Uh, you know, I mean, they could have they, they could have killed those, um, you know, so I think, uh, you know, the snakes were God's creation um, and Satan inhabited it um, and and he used it for his own purposes. And um, and so I believe that's why God allowed snakes to um, to, to come on the boat, because um, before Satan corrupted it, um, it, it was it was God's creation. I mean, because you don't hear anything about that be beforehand. So hope that answers your question. Um, Peter Gonzalez asks, hello, pastor. <laughs> this is my youth pastor asking this question. Who do you think wrote the book of Hebrews? I'm starting the study of the book of Hebrews this Sunday in our church. And so he's messing with me and he's not too far out my door right now. So um, anyways, who wrote the book of Hebrews? I will tell you this after studying. Um, I, I don't know. Um, most people will say Paul, but I side with David Guzik. And the fact is, is that we don't know. Um, and a lot of people will stick by Paul and that's totally fine. Um, you know, there's a lot of, of tendencies towards Paul. Um, and I will say this in defense of the Paul argument, okay? Um, if you look at the book of John, the gospel of John, um, when John is writing to the church, but he's also writing to Jews, he doesn't identify himself. Um, and he doesn't have a greeting at the front of that gospel as well, um, like Luke does. Um, and, oh, and, and so he just writes straight. And he never identifies himself. See, he always refers to himself as the one, the, uh, the, the disciple that Jesus loved. Now, I think because the writer of Hebrews is actually writing to Jewish Christians, um, he uses that mantra. He doesn't identify himself because that's the way Jewish literature was. They, the author... The author did not identify themselves, and they they tried to make it less about themselves and more about God. And so, and and man, the first four verses when it talks about the seven attributes of the glory of Jesus Christ and how He's superior to angels and all that kind of stuff, you know, I mean, that's a way better 
uh, intro than a, a welcome and, and, you know, that we see in a lot of other things. And so, I mean, if Paul wrote it, that's great. Um, and he nailed it because it's just, I mean, amazing. But but I'm still going to stick with it doesn't say who the author is. And there's rabid debate on both sides. And I am not a, a, a good enough scholar um, to. So I'm 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 going to defer um with David and see, I don't know. And listen, we, we've had dinners as an enduring word board where it's taken up a good chunk of that dinner of us arguing who the author of, 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 Paul, of, of Hebrews is. And so, um, you know, and that's just, you know, that's, <laughs> those are a lot of the discussions that we have when the board gets around, we just like to talk about that kind of stuff. And so, but I'm, I'm sticking to my guns. I don't know. I don't know. So. Thanks, Peter. Um, Jesper asks, hello, pastor. What differs between a Bible study and a Sunday sermon? Um, what has it looked like in your ministry? Okay, well, I like my Bible studies to be interactive. I like everybody to read part of the text if we're, if we're in a circle, okay, and I'm going to refer to that as a, as a Bible study. Um, if we're in that kind of Bible study, I like to I like to have you know whatever whatever amount of text we're reading, I like it to go around the circle and for people to to read the text because now people are engaged in it. Um, I don't like Bible studies to be one um, one person focused, and so I will often read the text. I'll explain it a little bit, a little bit, um, and then I'll ask questions and then and then kind of bring up applications. Okay, so that's how I see Bible studies now. Listen, a lot of other Calvary Chapel pastors don't see that that way. They just, you know, they see as you're just going verse by verse and it's more like a, a, a you know, educational lecture or something like that. And just kind of more, you know, kind of um, dispersing information. Um, I don't see it that way. I like I like Bible studies to be something where we're all kind of uh, studying the Bible together. And if people need to stop and ask questions from it, um, they can. OK, um, because. That's that's how you study. You ask questions, and I learn um, by explaining things. And so that's a Bible study. Now, a sermon. A sermon um, can be any place where I stand up, and it's one sided. It's people sitting there listening to whatever I'm going to teach. Okay, and so it could be preaching. It could be evangelistic. It could be a verse by verse study kind of thing. Um, um, and, and that's, you know, that's what I call the, a more sermon based. So I hope, um, Jesper, that answers your question. Um, Sandy asks, would you speak to the preeminence of Jesus? Of Jesus? Okay, so I'm going to assume why you mean the preeminence here. The preeminence um, uh, is spoken, <laughs> interesting enough, um, heavily in, in the first four verses of, of Hebrews chapter one. Um, you know, we, we talk about in, well, well let's, start, let's just break it down in Hebrews chapter one. In verse one, God says, in, in the beginning or in, in times of old, he spoke, God, when God spoke, he started speaking with prophets through the prophets, but then when his son came, came, now he speaks through his son. Okay. So we see Jesus being preeminent now over the old Testament prophets, because we don't need the old Testament prophets to speak because, because Jesus, and we have his word and we have the Holy spirit. Okay. So that's one way pre preeminent. Um, second of all, is that he's the heir of all things. Um, he, he, you know, when, when he atoned for our sins and, and he was resurrected, he went and sat at the right hand of his father. He was given a name above all names and, and he, he inherits everything. He, he, um, he is going to be blessed with, uh, he's blessed with everything his father has. Okay. All things his father has, he now has. That's what he said in the great, right before the great commission, he says, all authority has been given to me. Okay. That's what he says. So there's that right there. But but also, too, it says that he is, now this is really interesting. He's the radiance of the glory of his father, and he's the imprint of his nature. Now, this really speaks through the preeminence because the radiance, it's referring to the sun. Now, I heard this is great, and I can I kind of spree, I can preach my, my little mini sermon so it helps me prep for Sunday here. But, I, and this is great, you... You and I, we've never seen the sun. Like, we have not seen the actual physical sun. What we see are the solar flares and the radiance of the sun. Jesus, we've never seen God, but we've seen his son, Jesus Christ. 
and we've seen the radiance. And, and Jesus is that radiance of his father. But I also like it says that he's the imprint of his nature. Now, think about back in biblical times or even a little bit sooner than that, when people would use wax to seal letters. They'd put that wax, hot wax on, on, on the letter that they'd written, and then they'd imprint it with their signet ring. Jesus is that imprint. He's that wax where God has put his imprint into him, and he's the imprint of his nature. And, and, and it goes on even further. There's, there's much more, um, you know, I, let me, let me, um, let me get to Hebrews here real quick. I don't want to belabor this point, but I, I, I do want to finish it off because there's seven, seven aspects in the book of Hebrews about the, the preeminence of the nature of Jesus Christ. Um, he created the world. Okay, so he's preeminent there. He was there at the creation. He was, you know, Revelation says, "I'm the Alpha and the Omega." Um, the Book of Hebrews tells us at the end that he was there. Um, he was. Uh, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we, we see that. Um, but then it goes on, um, and it says that he upholds the universe um, by the word of his power. I mean, he just speaks, and he has that power to uphold. And that word, the uphold, really means to sustain. He makes things work. As I was talking earlier about the sovereignty of Jesus Christ, the sovereignty of God, like he's in control. He makes everything work, and he speaks it with his mouth, all right? Um, he made purification for our sins, um, and then he sat down at the right hand of his father, okay? The right hand of his father is the place of power and authority. That's the ultimate picture of preeminence right there. Nobody else is going to get that place. He's got it. Because why? Because not only is he the son, but he was obedient to the will of his father. And he came and he, he lowered himself to the place of a human. And then he lived amongst us and taught us. And then he died on the cross and he was resurrected and he rose again and he ascended to heaven and he ascended to the right hand of his father. And so that's where the preeminence comes from. So great question. Thank you for helping me prep for my message on Sunday, Sandy. All right. I hope it answers your question, but that's the way I explain it, or that's the way I understand it too. Okay. Susan asked, how would you explain God's will to young adults who are struggling with prayer and that God's will shall prevail? Um, the best way to show it to them is for them to, to do it. And so what I would suggest, Susan, is that you speak to young adults and say, okay, for the next 30 days, I want you to commit to praying for one specific thing. And I want after those 30 days for you to say what God has done. And, and they need to specifically, um, because they need to see that prayer in, in action. And, um, you know, I, I, I have been in so much prayer um, lately uh, about so many things, about my children, um, about our church, about um, what's going on with my wife's job. Um, and, and, and some of it's just straight up spiritual warfare. Um, and, and God having to do a difficult work. Um, but I'm only able to do that because I was faithful in the small things. And so the best way for you to, um, to really encourage them is to show them scripture, show them examples of it, um, give testimonies of them in your own life, and then challenge them to do it themselves because they're never going to fully get it. They're never going to fully catch it until they actually do it. So I hope that helps you, Susan. Okay, Jennifer Smith asks, Question, are being saved and baptized in the Holy Spirit the same? Reading John 3, 5, you cannot enter the kingdom unless baptized in the Holy Spirit. Ooh, okay. Um, yes, no, salvation and baptism in the Holy Spirit are not the same thing. Okay. Um, I believe in the three uh, threefold presence of the Holy Spirit. I believe the Holy Spirit comes alongside you before you're saved and they tug on your heart and they, 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 they impress upon you your need for Jesus Christ. That's how we know we need Jesus Christ. Um, I believe that, um, that when we get saved, he comes in us and we are filled with the Holy Spirit. But then I believe there's a later thing, um, which is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that's where the Holy Spirit comes on us. And I would give you the Greek words, um, but I always massacre them and, and, um, and it's not really that matter. But there are three distinct words coming alongside, in and upon, and they, they all refer to different aspects of the work of the Holy Spirit. And, and so I want to encourage you guys that, yes, there is a difference there. Um, now, John 3, 5, um, let me go there real quickly, and uh, I will 
I have the ESV, sorry. Um, so just, just bear with me. But John 3, 5 says this, Jesus answered, Truly I truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, what I believe is going on there is not the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but I believe what's there is the filling of the Holy Spirit. So, Jennifer, I hope that answers your question. But I believe there is a distinct difference. And, and, and the book of Acts shows us multiple times where people were filled with the Holy Spirit. We see that in Acts chapter two, the, the obviously the Pentecost. Um, we see Peter and John encounter people in Samaria who have received the baptism of, of John, but they haven't received the, the baptism of the Spirit. Um, and so it means that they're saved, but they haven't received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so they pray for them. We see in Acts chapter four, verse 31, where the disciples are there praying and God shakes the house and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, most of those people there were probably already, already been filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, but yet they were filled filled again and they're filled so they can have boldness to preach the gospel um we see so many times where the the holy spirit comes especially in the book of acts and so yeah it's i i believe it's a completely um it's not a completely different thing but it's it's something separate from the filling we i believe we're once we receive jesus christ we are all filled with the holy spirit and we're filled with things like i talked earlier the peace of jesus christ we're filled with the love we're filled um with uh, the um the, the fruits and the gifts of the Holy Spirit as we follow Jesus Christ. And so, Jennifer, I hope that answers your question. Banjo. Banjo says, hello, pastor. What is a good dictionary to use for studying the Bible? You know, uh, man, I know Easton's. Easton's is a good one. Uh, the reason I'm... I'm kind of stuttering and pausing is because of this. I, I use Logos Bible software and um, and it's this massive, massive software program that has like just thousands and thousands of resources and I've used it for years and years and years. And I literally click on something and it just pulls up commentaries and pulls up dictionaries and pulls up lectionaries and pulls up what kind of stuff. And I, and I rarely pay attention to... Um, what what the uh, um, which which dictionary it is, and so uh, I'm, I apologize for that. But I do know Easton's is a, a is a good Bible dictionary. It's it's one of the the classics of all time. So and that's the one that's coming to me off the top of my head. So I'm sorry if I I can't be more helpful on that. But um, but you won't go wrong with Easton's. So thanks, Banjo. Okay, Tunnel Ben. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I want to call you Tunnel Banana, but it's Tuttle Bannon twenty three. Um, what do you believe about the age of the universe, the earth, which year Adam was created? If the six creation days are literal um, evolution, when the dinosaurs died. Wow. Um, thanks for asking about eight questions in there, <laughs> but I'm going to answer. I'm going to answer them the best I can. I am a new earth person. I'm not an old earth person. Okay. I, I, I take most of the Bible literally. I believe God is capable of creating the earth in six days. Okay. The same God who parted the Red Sea, the same God who caused the floods to come, the same God who made the sun stop um, when uh, Moses and Joshua were, were fighting, um, the same God who had the, uh, the star appear to the Magi in the east. So they knew that Jesus was born. Um, the same, you know, can, can create the heavens and the earth in six days, okay? And I believe he rested on the seventh day. So I am I, I'm a new earther. Age-wise, 5,000 BC, I'm just throwing a number out there. Um, that's not, that, that's really not my expect, expertise area. So, um, but let's just go with 5,000 year, 5,000 BC. It could be longer. Lance is probably like, rolling his eyes at me right now, but that's okay. Um, it's not the first time. <laughs> uh, what, um, which year was Adam created? We'll go with, go with 5,000 BC. If six creation days are literal, um, oh, I'm sorry, evolution and when do the di dinosaurs die? Evolution. Um, I, I don't believe in evolution as it's taught today because I just don't think it, I just don't think it, um, it, uh, um, past even the, the, uh, the hypothesis test. I mean, I don't, I mean the, the scientific method, um, but um, have things evolved over time because of things? Yeah, of course, of course, but not, and not in the way that we, uh, most people understand evolution today. Um, when did the dinosaurs die? 
I'm, I'm going to go with the flood. So um, hope that answers your question. Okay, Banjo is back again. And Banjo says, Jesus is called the Word in John. If the whole Bible is called the Word of God, is each verse attached to Jesus? <laughs> you know, I've heard, I've heard David answer this question before on this Q&A. Okay, so um, the word is logos in John 1. He is the logos. He is the 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 word of God. Um, do I? But do and and the Bible is called the word of God because God has spoken it to humans and they have written it down. Okay. Um, but do I believe that every verse points back to Jesus? No. No. I'm doing my devotions right now, and um, one of the, I do the McShane um, devotions where you know it's like it's four chapters. I do one. I usually do two Old Testament, two New Testament, and one of them's in Deuteronomy right now. And and you know, I was it was talking about the Avenger, um, the family Avenger, who if you know somebody dies and you know somebody has to run to a refuge city, but there's a family Avenger who can chase them down if they come out of that uh, that city. And I'm not I'm not pointing to Jesus on those. Okay, um, that was just you know, basic direction for them how to live when they went to the Promised Land. So. I hope that answers the question. I'm not a believer that every, by every, but he is the word of God. He is. Um, he's the logos, but, um, but not, not in the way that, that you're talking right, right there. So, okay. Ronnie Sparks asks, is the Trinity fully explainable? If so, can you explain it for me? <laughs> or is it too big for human minds to come in? Yes, I can explain it to you. And yes, it is too big for human minds to explain, uh, <laughs> to comprehend. Does that answer your question? Um, but, okay, you have God the Father, you have Jesus the Son, and you have Holy Spirit. It, three distinct people, three distinct men, one Godhead. Okay, they function as one. The Holy Spirit is on the earth as as a representation of the spirit of Jesus Christ. He's the one who indwells people. He's the one who convicts people. He's the one who who uh, equips people to live for Jesus Christ here on the earth. Jesus is the son who came into came in flesh and and accomplished God's plan of redemption. And God is the father. He is the almighty. He's Yahweh. Um, and so they are three distinct individuals that exist in one um, one Godhead. What I mean is, is that they they focus is they do not operate apart from one another in the sense of going off and doing their own things. They are in complete sync with one another. And so, yeah, we won't fully understand that until we get to um, uh, until we get to to heaven. But hopefully, I can help you. Um, understand it that way. They are three distinct people and they have three separate purposes. And so, you know, you have God, the father who's in the, up in heaven in all his glory. You have Jesus Christ who sits at his right hand. He, he um, advocates for us. And then you have the Holy spirit who's working here on earth, but they were all there at the beginning of, of creation too, because Jesus is the creator of the Holy spirit was roaming over the earth. God was, God was in the heavens. And so, um, that's, I hope that helps you right there, Ronnie. Um, but like I said, yes, we won't fully understand it. Okay, Jabulani asks, hello from South Africa. Hello. Um, since God speaks to us through Jesus Christ, does it mean that we won't have new prophets? You know, I'm glad that you asked this question. Um, because, you know, as I was studying Hebrews chapter one, it says in the old time, he spoke through the Old Testament prophets. And now he has a son. He speaks through his son, Jesus Christ. Okay, so it'd be very easy to take that literal and say, well, now there's no prophets or no prophecy today. Do I believe there's an office of prophet? Um, No. Do I believe um, what a lot of these a lot of these hyper charismatic, you know, people going around calling themselves prophets? No. Um, But do I believe that people have the gift of prophecy and that God speaks through them? Yes. But do they speak in the way the Old Testament used to speak? No. I believe that they are there, God's God's voice, and they God uses them to speak in individual situations, um, usually to individual people. Sometimes he'll speak to large groups through a prophet, but um, I don't believe there's an office of a prophet. Um, but I do believe that that as in First Corinthians twelve tells us, there is the gift of prophecy, and I believe I believe that because God has used people to speak words into my life that eventually ended up coming true. And so, um, so 
Jabalani, that's my answer for you. I hope that um, that uh, uh, that helps you out there. All right. Okay. Dan Oliver asks regarding creation questions. I love it. Like we're we're doing a ton of revelation and now we're doing a ton of creation. We're just kind of hitting. We're kind of hitting both ends of the Bible here. So that's awesome. It says one of my teen Sunday school kids asked, "What came first, the chicken or the egg?" And I said, "Chicken," because Adam was fully formed adult. Laugh out loud. What do you think, Dan? I completely one hundred percent agree with you. I believe that God created the chicken because if he created the egg first, there was nothing there to sit on that egg to, to, to make it hatch and, and to feed it. And so I believe when he created the animals, chicken was one of them. The chickens laid eggs. They lay, they sat on those eggs. More chickens were, um, were, were, uh, were born. So I am a chicken person, not an egg person. I'm with you. Okay. DS asks, do you consider Calvinism a heresy? <laughs> It would not be a Q&A here for me if somebody didn't ask a Calvinism question or some, you know, some kind of eternal salvation question. Um, um, so it says, do you consider it heresy in the sense of God determining the unelect to be predestined to hell, as in God intentionally sending those people to hell? Is this a heresy? Okay, I'm, I always go back to the scripture where it says that God desires that everyone be saved. Um, and I have a hard time with a loving God purposely sending people to hell. Um, now, that's my personal beliefs. And I have a lot of friends who will just argue with me and they'll throw scriptures at me and they'll throw Romans 9 and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and you know, that's fine. But, um, but God would not have given us the Great Commission to go um, into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples if he if if he had already predetermined those who had those who were coming into heaven and those who don't. now does he know yes but but I think he gives all of us that opportunity and 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 if there wasn't if there was no opportunity then there's no need for the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts um, to render us to that point where we ask for salvation and and so do I consider Calvin Calvinism heresy no. Okay, I won't go that far, but this is what I will do. I for um, uh, I will say, look at the fruit of hyper Calvinists, of hyper reformed people. Um, if they are bitter, they're angry, they're judgmental, um, and there's absolutely no shred of love in their life. Um, they are living heretical lives because the fruit of Jesus being in your life should first and foremost be love. And if a Calvinist does not have love in their heart, um, uh, then, then yeah, I, I have issues with their, um, with their theology because um, they're, they're, if, if they're one of the elect, then they should be one of the happiest people. And oftentimes what I found, especially with hyper Calvinists is that they're, they're just miserable people to be around. Okay. And, and Jesus says we will be judged by our fruit. Okay. Not by the doctrine we can espouse, but by, but by our fruit. So hope that helps you. Okay. Kenzie T asks, how should we act around friends that are not Christian when they talk about unbiblical things like witchcraft? Should we make a point to speak up and share our biblical views, even if it causes division? <sighs> okay, Kenzie. Um, First of all, I don't I don't know your situation. So um, and and I'm not one of those people who says every situation is unique, but but not every situation is the same. And so um, first of all, what I would do, I would encourage you to pray. Okay, Um, I would encourage you to pray and to say, Lord, you know, um, you see my friends are talking about this stuff. They they know I don't believe in it. I I feel like I need to say something. And so can you give me discernment and you give me opportunities to share in a loving and gracious way um, that this is wrong and that it's against God and that, that God has so much more for them? That's what I would encourage you to do. Do you need to say something every time? No, no. Um, but do you need to say something? Yes. Yeah, because you God puts you in those people's lives to be a missionary, to to be the one who brings his gospel to their lives. And you both say it and show it. And so you you do it in a very gracious, in a very loving kind of way. So 
hopefully that answers your question. But I, I don't think you should just be totally quiet um, uh, when you're around them. But I think you should, you know, I think you should be able to speak your mind. And if people have a hard time with it, say, hey, you're not taking to the fact that I'm, a, I'm offended by what you're saying. So hopefully that answers your question. All right. Okay, Sandy M., how should a pastor or leader handle conflict in the church? Okay, well, uh, Matthew 18 is a good place to start. Um, uh, whether with the people who are in conflict, they, that, that if somebody's been wronged, the, the Bible says that, that, that you, the person who's wrong needs to go to the person who wronged them. And they need to go one-on-one, just them. Then the Bible says, if they won't hear you, you go with somebody else. So you take a friend, you take a family member. And then if they won't hear that, then you bring it. If, if they're both believers, you bring it before the church. Um, how should a pastor handle conflict? Um, the, you know, he should, he should um, desire to be a mediator uh, with the people. Um, he should definitely be praying for it. Um, but, but conflict, I mean, he, he needs to, he needs to handle it. He needs to, uh, nip it in the bud as soon as possible. Um, because too many pastors, and I've been guilty of this as well, have let things go and it's festered and it's just made things absolutely worse. So that's, I hope you, um, well, well, I hope that helps you there, Sandy, but, um, but conflict, I think they need to be on top of things. They need to be willing to have the hard conversations. They need to be able to speak the truth and, and they need to love the people enough to work through the whole situation. And that's hard. That's really hard, but we're pastors. We've been called to that and we need to buck up and, and, and do it. So, all right. Okay. Carrie Lehman asks, what is a biblical way to respond when being accused of intolerance in the workplace for simply giving a biblical response to a heated topic, even with love and grace? Um, okay, Carrie, let me just be honest with you right up the top of the bat. Um, there are just going to be situations where it's a lose-lose. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter how you react because the fact is, there's just people out there that are angry um, and, and they want to attack people and they want to force their beliefs upon people. And, and the last thing that they want is kind of resistance. And they feel like if they attack you, that they're going to silence you. But the way that I would encourage you to respond is simply this. You need to speak the truth. You need to do it in love. But then you need to continue to love the person and not avoid the person um, after the conflict. Because you need to show them that, hey, I, I think way more high of you than our conversations, than, um, than our disagreements. That, that I'm willing to, to love on you. And so, um, so, you, so it needs to be a full, full thing, not just the conversation. But you need to, to show them that you're a friend. And um, then that, that you're going to accept them. Um, and, and, and when I, <laughs> when I'm saying accept, I'm not saying that you're affirming their lifestyle or you're, you're believing what they say, but that, that, that you're going to love them no matter what your love is not based on your, your beliefs and that they're wrong with your beliefs. Your, your love is based on the fact that God loves them the same way that he loves you and that you were once a sinner like them and God saved you. And so you need to love them the way Christ loved you and the way he continues to love you. And so, so it's, it's more than just the, you know, if they're going to get offended, that's fine. But don't stop being their friends. If they avoid you, don't avoid them. But just keep on loving on them. And God will show you ways to do that. But take the long view and the long approach. Right? Okay, Carrie. Okay, Tunnel Banana. I'm sorry, Tunnel Bannon 23 is back. How long of a time do you think there was um, from the creation of the universe until the creation of the earth? Is there any perspective on this? Yes. I think day one, it was the creation of the universe. I think day two was the creation of the earth. That's what I believe. I believe everything was created in six days. I, I had 24 hour days, you know, sun, moon, you know, out of nothing, this form existence came because God spoken into belief and then he formed the earth. That's what I believe. So hopefully that answers your, your question there. Okay. Next one's coming in. I think maybe not. Are we done? Uh, Matt Nord. 
when will, for we will all stand before God's judgment seat in Romans 14.10 takes place? Is this after death, after revelations, or later on? Okay, so you have the judgment seat of Christ, okay, and you have the great white throne judgment. The judgment seat of Christ is where the believers will go, okay, and we will stand before Christ. And I believe this will happen, um, this will happen like when, after the rapture, when we're before um, Christ. I could be wrong on this. I, I'm not very good on the timing of these things, but I do know the great white throne judgment is after the tribulation, um, and after, um, you know, that millennial reign and, 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 and Satan is thrown into to things. So there are two separate ones. There's one for believers and one for non-believers. Okay. Good. Good question though. All right. Um, Ronnie Sparks asks, in reference to Luke 16, 24, where it says those in hell are praying for their family to be saved. Do you think there are more people in hell praying for lost souls? Then we are on earth. Okay. Um, <laughs> let, let, by the way, David Guzik is saying hi from Brazil. So he, he got some internet connection, but, um, but uh, that's why he couldn't be on the program today. So if you look in the comments, you'll see it right there. Respond to his things and tell him hi. Um, but let me get to Luke 1624 here. Cause I, you know, So Luke 16, 24 says, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish and flame. Okay, so we're talking about the rich man here and he goes to hell. And, and, I, and this is what I thought you were talking about. Um, and I, I, I'm not fully convinced that, that because um, this is just kind of a parable kind of thing. Um, that people in hell are praying for people here on earth. I, I think they're in complete anguish. Um, and I think uh, that is consuming everything. And I, you know, I don't think that they get a conscience for people while they're down there because it's such a wicked, wicked place. So that that's my personal belief. Um, if they are praying, oh, I'm pretty sure they're praying for a lot of people because there's a lot of regret. And maybe part of the torment of hell is just all the regret of how they live their lives and, um, and, and, and what they missed out on. I know there's a lot of people who th think they're going to, um, to heaven and they end up in hell. And, and so, so I, you know, but I, 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 I don't think they're up there. I doubt they're down there praying. So that's, that's my personal belief. I could be totally wrong. Um, so anyways, um, any other questions? We're getting close to finishing up. Last question from Kenzie T. What should a Christian do if they're feeling so spiritually weak that it's difficult to pray, read the word due to guilt that they feel about the state of their spiritual life and the sin that has resulted? Oh, Kenzie, we've all been there. We've all gone through dry spells. We've all gone through difficult times. We've all gone through long stretches of period where we were just in a season of sin and we feel guilty to... Um, to, to even come to God and, and Satan has gotten us beaten down because he's, he's got that guilt. He's got that shame. Um, and, and we are just feeling condemned, but we have to remember what the book of Romans says. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's not just for those who were not sinning because all of us are sinning every day, but for those who are in besetting sins, or those ones that are kind of, you know, where Satan has got a foothold, what we, we, we need to start small. And what I mean by that is you start with simple John 1, 9, you know, you go and you confess your sins. Now, that's not just saying, Lord, please forgive me. Like you confessing literally means like you're telling God what he already knows. Okay. But you have to tell him because there's something that triggers in your heart when you start to lay out all the sins that you've done. And, and so I just want to encourage you or, or you know, if, if somebody's going through that, that, that they start right there and, um, and, and you know what's amazing is that when we do confess, it literally feels like there's this weight, this burden that's that's um, um, lifted off of us. And so we, we we need to start with that confession, that admission of our sins. But then it goes on to there where we need to start, you know, avoiding the areas that that were causing that 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 period of our life. And but we need to fill our lives with 
you know, it's kind of like garbage in, garbage out, you know, God in, God out. And, and we need to surround ourselves with godly people. We need to be in godly places. We, 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 we need to fight to get the Bible in, into our hearts and into our minds. And we need to fight to pray. Um, and sometimes it is a battle and we need to bring other people alongside us and we need to humble ourselves. And we need to ask the Lord to, to do that work in our heart. And it's, it's, it's not easy. It's difficult. But I just want to challenge you, Kinsey. And, you know, there are times when it's difficult to read God's word. And there's times where the guilt is, 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 is really high. And you just got you you, you, you to understand that. And you've got to recognize it. And then you got to move on from it and um, ask God to do the work in your heart. And he will. He's faithful and just. Um, to remove all your sins. Um, and he's faithful and just to fill you with peace um, and, and to do that work in your heart. And so, but you have to realize it's spiritual warfare. And so we, we can't treat it like a walk through the park. We have to literally treat it like a battle and we have to have that mentality and realize that there is a battle going on um, for your soul and for your life. And Satan is going to try to get as many footholds as possible. So, hey, that's it. Thank you guys. We survived. And thank you for all you guys who uh, stuck around and uh, was part of this. And it was a blast. I always love doing this. I always learn so much. And, um, and I want to thank David um, Guzik for asking me to do this. And so um, until the next time, thank you for everybody. Watch all those people from the TRW 60 360. Um, hey, God bless you guys. Have a wonderful day and uh, we'll see you next time. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.